Welcome again to my show, Searching for Integrity. My name really is John Smith, and I'm searching for people with integrity. Why? <clears throat> because our country suffers from IDD, Integrity Deficit Disorder. We have a variety of news today, articles, mostly uh, discussions regarding presidential matters, Congress, Senate, the economy, uh, present and past, uh, all about names today, Trump, Hillary, Ronald Reagan, the IRS, the Fed, and Twitter. That's today's agenda. So, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'm going to ask you, trust you, that you do know I'm the author of my book, A Memoir, Embracing the Abyss. It's a true story of unknowingly becoming part of a fraud scandal, receiving a presidential pardon, and being surprised by a spiritual awakening. Here's my book. Well, let's begin. I wanted to uh, begin with uh, Mr. Byron York. He's quite, a, quite an author article writer. He's a chief political co correspondent in Washington. So this article is, we're in a class anti-Trump frenzy, is what it says. Beginning in the months Donald Trump took office and extending well into his presidency, the media and political world took a set of vague but serious accusations of wrongdoing involving the 2016 Trump campaign in Russia and created a 24-7 frenzy of talk about secret evidence, potential criminal charges, and allegedly grave damage to national security. Fed by leaks originating in federal law enforcement, the intelligence community, and interested lawyers, ostensibly responsibly, observers engaged in wild speculation. Collusion with three exclamation points. That was terribly damaging to then President Trump. And there was here was the punchline. Nobody knew what the evidence was. It was secret, classified, grand jury going, investigation ongoing, whatever. All the talk was based on little bits of information and no one at the time had the big picture. The secrecy cloaking the details of the case allowed anti-Trump speculation to flourish. By the time a multi-year criminal investigation with all the powers of law enforcement was unable to establish that conspiracy or coordination collusion had even occurred at all, the damage had been done. Trump Russia had irreparable harm presidency for the Trump, and he lost Lots of years could not be recovered. Now with Trump 19 months out of the White House, it's happening again. The issue, of course, is the allegation that Trump hit, hid documents from his presidency at Mar-a-Lago, his winter home in Florida. By doing so, the allegation goes, Trump violated the Presidential Records Act, which requires that outgoing presidents turn over their papers to the National Archives. In addition, the allegation continues, some of the material dumped Trump 
kept was classified, some of it at a high level. But what is it? What is the material the FBI carted away from Mar-a-Lago? The recently released search warrant says things like miscellaneous secret documents and miscellaneous top secret documents. And in one case, various classified TS slash SCI documents referring to top secret sensitive compartmented information referring to a higher classification level than simply top secret. That was led many media figures to characterize the case as deeply serious and without and with potential exposure of the Trump's documents, the nation's secrets, posing a grave risk to national security. But again, what's in the documents? What are they about? We don't know. And that is the key, the central, the most important thing to remember in this case. We are in a classic cycle of hair on fire Trump allegations, and we don't know what they're all about. In a post on the Lawfare website, Jack Goldsmith, the Harvard Law Professor and former George W. Bush Justice Department official wrote, the prudence of Attorney General Merrick Garland's judgment will turn to a large degree on the true sensitivity of the information there. Goldsmith then quoted former President Barack Obama who in April 2016, at the height of the Hillary Clinton email affair, it was the former Secretary of State, was accused of mishandling classified information, defended Clinton by suggesting that too much government information is classified. I handle a lot of classified information, Obama said. There's classified and then there's classified. There's stuff that is really top secret, top secret, and there's stuff that's being presented to the president or the secretary of state that you might not want on the transom or going out over the wire, but is basically stuff that you could get in the open source. Obama was criticized for those remarks. Goldsmith noted, yes, the truth is what Obama says. As many critics like the late Daniel, Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan have noted the U.S. government classifies way too much more information. It will matter a lot in assessing Garland's decisions whether the information Trump had was closer to really top secret, top secret, or information available in public, Goldsmith wrote. A few days before Goldsmith posted his piece, the Washington Post reported the classified documents relating to nuclear weapons were among the items FBI agents sought in the Mar-a-Lago raid. Nuclear weapons? It can't get any more serious than that. The story did not appear to be particularly strong sourced, and beyond the world nuclear, the four reporters bylined on the place did not seem to know what it meant. Indeed, in a podcast, one of the reporters, Shane Harris, noted that while the FBI was concerned enough to watch launch a raid, it doesn't seem that there was a kind of urgency attached to this. When asked the level of concern the, the public should have Harris answered on a scale of one to ten, put it out at five or six for now. None of that caution mattered. The word was out. 
Trump stole nuclear secrets, the most critical secrets a nation can possess. Two words for you, my friend. Joe Scarborough said on MSNBC, two words, nuclear secrets. That said it all. But the question remains, what does that mean? Did Trump have the nation's nuclear weapons blueprints? Did he have some other nation's weapons information? Or was it something else? Perhaps something frivolous, as Goldsmith suggested, like Trump bragging that his nuclear button was bigger than North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un's? The answer will be important. We do know via the New York Times that Trump, when speaking about his friendly correspondence with Kim, said of the letters, they're mine, suggesting he was not too concerned about observing the President Residentials Act. But of course, we don't know what happened. The Biden Justice Department is keeping it a secret, so look for the speculation to go on. Instead of speculation, the public needs facts, facts, facts. And without some actual facts to evaluate, we're all stuck in a replay of the Trump-Russia fiasco. Thank you, Byron York. I'm gonna follow this up with an item, very interesting, related in a situational relation. The author is uh, Alan Dershowitz. Mr. Dershowitz is a well-known attorney from the Professor Emeritus at Hartford Law School and the author of The Price of Principle, Why Integrity is Worth the Consequences. Uh, by the way, I ordered that book. It's on demand. You might see it in a month. So this article begins with, but her emails, a defense of whataboutism, Mrs. Clinton should take her hat off. Treating like cases alike is crucial to the equal protection of the law. Attorney General Merrick Garland is a decent man, and he said the right things in his statement regarding the search of Donald Trump's residence at Mar-a-Lago. All Americans are entitled to the even-handed application of the law to due process of law and to presumptions of innocence is what he didn't say that raises disturbing questions about the process. Why didn't the Justice Department seek to enforce the subpoena it apparently had issued, rather than seek a search warrant? Was this consistent with the standard practice Mr. Garland articulated in his statement to seek less intrusive alternatives to a search whenever possible? Why was the matter handled so differently from the prior investigations? of Sandy Berger and Hillary Clinton, who were also suspected of mishandling classified material. Mrs. Clinton herself mocked that question by sporting a baseball cap with a logo, but her emails. Her hat is intended to deride the argument made by Trump supporters and some civil libertarians that the investigation of Mr. Trump's alleged security breaches should be evaluated against the way in which earlier cases were handled. Berger and Mrs. Clinton were suspected of mishandling confidentially materials, he by removing them from the National Archives in 2005, she by transmitting them over her private email server 
while serving as Secretary of State. Berger was administratively fined and Mrs. Clinton was rebuked by James Comey, then director of the Federal Bureau investigation, our friends at the FBI, which might have cost her the 2016 election. But neither was subjected to broad search warrants or criminal prosecution. Those who reject this comparison accuse those who make it of, of whataboutism, but treating like cases like it's crucial in the equal protections of the laws. The way in which Berger and Ms. Clinton were treated is highly irrelevant in determining whether Mr. Trump is being subjected to a double standard of justice. The facts, especially the degrees of culpability, may be different, and if so, they would provide a good answer to what about question. And if the facts are similar and the treatment is different, Americans are entitled to ask whether these Johnny, this constitutes the even application of the law that Mr. Garland promised. The shoe must fit comfortably on the other foot if justice is to be done and seen to be done. There can't be one rule for Democrats and another rule for Republicans. So the question about her emails is in right and appropriate on. Mocking it is no answer, neither is the cliche, two rock wrongs do not make a right. The second wrong doesn't justify or excuse the first, but unequal treatment of two comparable wrongs should raise concerns about fairness and inequality. Unequal treatment of two equal wrongs is a third wrong. What aboutism argument applies as well to the manner in which Trump loyalists such as Peter Navarro, Roger Stone, and Paul Manafort were arrested. In comparable cases involving similar charges, the defendants were handcuffed, shackled, or subjected to restraints generally reserved for those who pose a risk of violence or flight. What aboutism is a new word for an old idea. There's a 19th century Yiddish expression, a for instance is not an argument, yet sometimes it is. If a pattern of non-enforcement can be demonstrated, as with the Logan Act, under which nobody has been prosecuted since 1852, it will be difficult, difficult to prove equal justice if it is suddenly and selectively invoked to target a political enemy. If, on the other hand, but the violation of the Classification of Records Acts were routinely prosecuted and alleged violators subject to a search warrant, then the case for equal application of the law will have been made. Perhaps presidents should be treated differently. It is often argued that presidents are above the law, but neither are they beneath deserving fair treatment, as Bill Clinton can attest. Mrs. Clinton should take off her hat, just her actions don't excuse Mr. Trump's, his don't excuse hers. Her treatment of the emails, emails and server were wrong, even if they didn't constitute a crime. Mr. Trump's removal of possibly classified information might have been wrong too. Such two wrongs should encourage Congress to tighten up the laws governing such information in the Justice Department to enforce them equally and fairly as Mr. Garland assures us it does. But until Mr. Garland 
fully and specifically answers the hard questions about appears to be unequal application of rules and practices. What about her emails will be a pertinent question. Mr. Derbert Dersowicz is quite a, quite a man, quite a lawyer, very well respected. Um, big surprise about all of that. You know, it reminds me, at least I've heard in the news, that they're waiting on an affidavit. The affidavit has been sealed. Uh, it's not to be sealed, but it's just not been re revealed is what has happened. And they keep saying, yes, the affidavit, yes, the affidavit. And that's where the information is about the uh, uh, information of why they should uh, have done what they did. Uh, it, it also is uh, like waiting on an affidavit and they're waiting on the affidavit. Strikes me, <laughs> seriously, strikes me like waiting for Godot. Waiting for Godot is a play by Samuel Beckett with only two characters, Diddy and Godot. Arrived the mysterious Godot who continually sends words that he will appear, but who never does. We should set aside some time to reflect about this Beckett play. It's only 69 years old. Sometime in the, in the near future, I should present more of my good goal to enlighten your day covering interesting, more waiting Godot matters. I'm a big fan of that. Read the book. Next item. Phil Graham, former senators, wrote this article. Reagan's lessons in economic leadership, I saw him put the country's interest ahead of his own more than once. We could use a leader like that now. President Biden's signing of the so-called Inflation Reduction Act brings back four decade old memories of better economic leadership. On August the 13th, 1981, President Reagan signed the Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act into law. It unleashed a quarter century of American prosperity, which made it possible to restore price stability and win the Cold War. In this time of harsh rhetoric and political zealotry, it is comforting to remember Reagan not only for what he did for this country, but for what the kind of man he was. Let me share two previously untold examples of his extraordinary leadership and humanity that I witnessed during the making of the Reagan Revolution. In 1980, I was a freshman Democratic congressman from Texas, Representative David Stockman and I offered a substitute for President Carter's final budget. Reagan appointed Mr. Stockman, Director of the Office of Management and Budget, and our bipartisan proposal became the foundation of the Reagan budget. Representative Delbert Latta of Ohio, ranking Republican of the House Budget Committee, and I jointly authored the Reagan budget in the House. The world the word is overused, but I feel confident in calling the Graham-Latta budget transformative. While the budget was a dramatic change in public policy, the initial vote set only broad parameters, cut no programs, and was easily passed. 
The reconciliation bill, implementing it was the most difficult vote of the Reagan era. It contained the largest post-war cuts in domestic spending and eliminated three Social Security benefits to address the impending bankruptcy of the system. While this were strong arguments for entering each of these add-on benefits, a vote to eliminate them meant touching the third rail and endangering a lawmaker's career. As the House vote approached, some 30 Republican Republicans asked for a meeting with the president to demand changes in the reconciliation bill. I was asked to join the discussion, and before the meeting, I was taken to the Oval Office to meet with Reagan. He asked me what I thought we should do. I told him I said that before offering my advice. I needed to remind him that three years ago I was teaching college economics and that I had never done anything remotely this important in my life. Reagan smiled and said, well, neither have I. When we stopped laughing, I, I asked, if we fix one group's problems, we won't another demand changes, where do we stop? Without responding, Reagan got up and led the way to the meeting. Sitting down at the cabinet table, the president said, you called this meeting, so let me listen to what you have to say. The first speaker assured the president that he was for our program, but he had problems with his constituents. He quickly became clear that the attendees had planned out what they were going to say, and almost every member raised concerns about his constituents. When they all had spoken, the president said nothing for what seemed like five minutes as he looked at each of the 30 members in puzzled silence. I've been confused, he said finally. I thought this vote was for the future of our country. I didn't know it was about political constituencies. We then got up and walked out of the room. He then got up and walked out of the room. Reagan did. The stunned silence continued for several minutes and more than a few congressmen teared up as they got up to leave. When the final vote was taken, not one person who had been in that room voted no. Reagan was more than a leader who knew who he was and what he wanted to do. He was a man who could keep things in perspective with the economy incurring, enduring double-dip recessions. Republicans lost 26 House seats in 1982. And even with the support of the conservative Democrats, Reagan no longer had a bipartisan, bipartisan conservative majority. In one of their first acts, my Democratic colleagues voted to throw me off the budget committee. The president and the Republicans publicly urged me to change parties. <laughs> but I had been elected as a conservative Democrat, and I felt that if I changed parties, some people in my district might feel betrayed. The only honorable thing to do was to resign from Congress and stand for election as a Republican. While many later saw this as a clever political move, it didn't feel that way at the time. No Republican candidate for Congress in the history of my district had ever received more than 35% of the vote. On the eve of my resignation, I called Lee Atwater, the president's political director, to tell him that I what had decided to do. He told me he believed that I would be defeated and urged me simply to change parties. I said I thought I could win, and it was the right thing to do regardless, so I was going to do it. Atwater rushed into Reagan's office and pleaded with him to call me and tell me not to resign. 
When the president called, he started by telling me that Lee was on the verge of having a stroke. Could I please explain what I was doing and why? I explained and I told him it was the right thing to do. To my astonishment, the president agreed. People have a way of judging a person's character and knowing when a man is doing right. I didn't discover until after I had resigned, run against nine Democrats and one that Lee Atwater had remained and demanded that the president call me back that day. He predicted that I was going to lose and in the wake of the 1982 defeats that it would be the beginning of the end of Reagan presidency. Reagan responded, Lee, the whole world does not revolve around me, nor my presidency. This is about Phil Graham, and he is going to do the right thing, and I can live with whatever the results turn out to be. To paraphrase Archie Bunker, we could use a man like Ronald Reagan again. <laughs> Mr. Graham is a former chairman of the Senate Banking Committee. He was quite a Texan. My final, I'm going to save this paper. It's, it, the, the next three are, are very good, and they link together. And I want to, to keep you in mind that one is called Twitter becomes a tool of government censorship. So you can look forward to that. Alex Berenson was kicked off at the White House's urging. That's a violation of the First Amendment. The second one is Fed officials see need for continued interest rate increases, but less certainty over destination. What that tells you is that the rate, the rate increases are going to continue, but doesn't know the destination, where they're going to take them. That's interesting to see. They don't know where they're going. The Fed, I think a number of Americans would agree with that. And the second, third rather, uh, article today, the second of uh, Byron York, that he has a, an article called IRS Upgrades Are Reason to Worry. And as you've heard in this new bill that's come out, great deal of American taxpayers are going to have to be um, dealt with by the IRS in an extra $80 billion for the, for the IRS to bring them to the paddle bar. So we'll save that for the next one. Uh, the next one getting together for it, of course. I want to say that um, I've had a pleasure today of this, doing this. This was a good one I picked out. Uh, it's a, um, uh, you know, sometimes I think about, uh, like I was saying, a goal to enlighten your day, and that's what I'm trying to do. I want to thank my listeners for tuning in to Searching for Integrity. Uh, thank you very much, and I want to thank you all tuning in to Searching for Integrity. So long and happy trails to all. John Smith, adios, checking out.